Welcome back to another episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. Eisman, in the middle of the playoff heat, it is good to have you on. I'm happy to be back. You know, it's it's been it's been crazy. It's been a it's been a very interesting uh, first series, and kind of seeing how this next series has progressed. It's not exactly how I expected it to go, but you know, that's how the NBA always is. It's always exciting. Yeah, well, today, especially more than ever, I feel that resent that uh, sentiment because as we're recording this, Heat Sixers are on right now in Game Five, and then Mavs Suns has Game Five tonight at ten. So I think a good place to start is probably those two series before the other two series. My question for you is that you mentioned that it's been surprising, and the real stories both from Miami and Phoenix. You have both the the one seeds in these conferences off to hot, hot starts in the first round and in the 2-0 series leads in the second round, combine 0 for 4 in games 3 and 4, like for both those series. And now Miami faces a huge game 5 at home. They're up, I think, 13 right now. And Dallas play – or Phoenix and Dallas play later tonight. Starting off with Miami and Philly, is that how you expected the series to go? Um, I knew it, to, I knew it was going to be uh, a close series. I mean, Phil – listen, Miami is, is – Everyone knows Miami is an extremely deep team. And the, I guess the biggest thing that surprised me is how little playing time Duncan Robinson has got thus far, especially with their struggles from three in the last couple games. But it, it's, it's also understandable because he's also kind of a defensive liability. But if you're looking for scoring and you need a reliable deep threat, I'm, I'm a little surprised he hasn't gotten more minutes, but at the end of the day, they're also going up against Joel Embiid, who, you know, was the clear runner-up for MVP this year, you know, now that it's out. But, I mean, they have James Harden. They have Tyrese. Tyrese Maxey has been a revelation this year. Like, Philly, Philly is a really good team. And so I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily surprised by how this series has gone. But, I mean – I still would expect the Heat to win just because I feel like they're they're a deeper team and they've you know they've they've made a run to the finals in recent years. Tyler Hero is the sixth man of the year. Like they're they're just all around a very solid team. And I just don't think Philly has necessarily as much um, you know, they they they're I think I just feel like Philly is is a little top heavy, whereas Miami is is strong all around throughout the roster. Yeah, there's three pillars for me that as the series has gone on, and I agree with the two that you mentioned right now and have a third. I think my dynamic for this series was Miami's offense versus Philly's defense. Philly, we know notoriously has a horrible defense just all around, but Miami can struggle to score at times. And I, the Duncan Robinson bit's the perfect example because Miami's basically saying we will sacrifice shooting for more two-way play and put more Old Depot minutes, more Struess minutes, more Hero minutes, and no Duncan Robinson. The other shocker for me, though, is James Harden looks really good right now, especially with that game four performance. I was very skeptical for both the Brooklyn and the Philly side of the James Harden-Ben Simmons trade, but Harden, the value he puts in a playoff roster as your second guy, it's clearly showing right now with these last two games that Philly won. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's what Philly needed is because – you know, I feel like James Harden has kind of a reputation as like a ball dominant, like scorer, but really ever since he got traded to Philly, he's, I mean, he's been kind of their lead assist guy. He's, he's been their, he's been their facilitator and not necessarily needing 
the ball in his hands. And I mean, yes, they have Joel Embiid. So that that's a guy who's going to command a lot of, a lot of ball possession, but even, even when you, you know, you exclude the, the couple games that Harden's played really well, you know, he's had his shooting struggles, but I feel like he's also made his impact on the game throughout his, you know, his court vision, his passing ability and stuff like that. I think the other thing too, with this series that I noticed was clearly it's a battle of what's more valuable. Is it James Harden and Joel Embiid who are easily better than Jimmy and Bam or is it Miami's better all around depth? Cause Philly, the problem is they have a lot of one way guys like Tybal is exclusively defense only. I would argue Maxi is mainly offense. I'd argue Danny green is kind of like a little bit of both, but they have a lot of one way guys. And what I've seen from this series is like, Philly just finds a way to get hot out of nowhere. Like Danny Green last game was really good. They really did a good job basically saying, we'll let Jimmy score 40 points if everyone else sucks. Like Bam and Abayo has been horrible this series. I think that's kind of the shift I've seen so far as well. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, as we see it right now, the Heat are up 11 in the second quarter. But Philly, I feel like Philly is more, like, like you said, they can get hot at any time and that's what will carry them to victory. But if you're looking in the long term of the playoff run, I feel like that's not what will necessarily translate to success either. And I feel like Miami, they're just very balanced. Their, their, their identity, I feel like all season has been as a defensive team. And, you know, even if, even if they get past Philly here, I like I like their chances to against either the Bucks or the Celtics. I I do like Miami's chances to make it to the finals because it just feels like they're the most well-rounded and cohesive team in terms of team basketball uh, versatility and just you know they they don't necessarily have the most the star-studded guys that. Philly has with Embiid, Milwaukee has with Giannis, Boston has with Tatum and Brown, but it's it's just the the team basketball that the Heat play. I feel like will will end up carrying them to the finals, and if not, I mean they'll be the champ. Obviously, the West is is extremely strong as well, but I I, I see Miami making it out of the East as of now. So my question to you, because that was actually one of my things I wanted to know from you, was that. I'm assuming that we both have Miami advanced to the conference finals at least. Who would you rather play if you're Miami? Because I feel like there's a little bit of pro and con with playing Milwaukee and Boston. I feel like Boston matches up better, but Milwaukee's incredibly more thin than Philly even ever was. Who would you rather play if you're in Miami's shoes right now? If I am Miami, I would probably rather see the Bucs so long as Chris Middleton is not playing. Um, I, I don't necessarily, I don't know the timetable for when he's supposed to come back, but I think if he's, if he's out, you'd rather see the bucks, you know, that's, that's their second guy. That's their go-to behind Giannis. But if he is playing, I mean, that's the defending champs at their full strength. Boston, listen, Tatum, supremely talented, Jalen Brown, supremely talented, Al Horford's been playing really, really well as of late, too. But I still think, as a whole, um, the Bucks most similarly resemble at full strength the Heat. And so, in that sense, 
I think I would rather see the Celtics if Middleton comes back. But if he doesn't, obviously, I'd rather see the Bucks. Real quick, Heat are up 14 right now. So I guess this proves our theory. I, I'm a, I'm honestly indifferent. I think I'd actually rather play Milwaukee, and here's why. I think the problem I have is, like, Giannis is easily better than Tatum, and we've seen this postseason Tatum. He has his 40-point games, but he also has his, like, 5-for-21 shooting games. With the Bucks, they have more people you can attack. Like, you can go at George Hill. You can go at Grayson Allen. Like you can, the problem I have with Miami is the offense, because offensively, we saw with the Bucks last year, they didn't have the firepower. But if Middleton's going to be like not even 100%, even if he's back, and you can pick these certain guys. With Boston, they're just going to play their top eight, and their top eight's going to be really good all around defensively. And I think that's what cons- what's concerning there for Miami. Yeah, but also, I mean, you, you also have to take into consideration that the Bucs are the defending champs. They're the defending champs for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Um, they have a swagger to them this year that – was not their yeah. life. They were just scary. And I mean, you know, Jokic won MVP, but I think I truly feel like Giannis is the best player in the league, regardless of what anyone says. You know, he's – is he a great three-point shooter still? Not really, but at least he's developed his range from there. So at least it makes him a threat from down the arc where people have to guard him out there. And, I mean, the guy just – the guy is just physically dominant over really anybody – and I think that can that will be a little mitigated with Middleton out because there can be more defensive focus from the Heat onto Giannis. But if Middleton plays, that's I just feel I feel like that's a more dangerous offensive team at least because yes, like you said, Giannis is better than Jason Tatum, and it's not to take anything away from him or any of the guys on the Celtics. Marcus Smart has been playing very well too. Like the Celtics are a good team. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. There's a reason why they're here. There's a reason why they're tied with the box in the series right now. But if Chris Middleton is back, I just feel like you don't want to see a team that's been there before, a team that's largely returned its core group of players in the playoffs. They took out the Nets last year, who you know a lot of people thought were going to end up being the team to win it all. And I think I would rather, assuming that Chris Middleton is back, I would rather see Boston. But that's a very big if. Yeah, because Boston – so the other thing with Boston that I've noticed is like – because we can transition a bit into the Game 5 series, but I want to end on this note. If I had to pick out of all the teams left, like which superstar would I not want to play against – the rest of the postseason, besides maybe Luca, I'm picking Giannis. Like you do not want to face Giannis for a seven game series and think that you have better odds to beat him four out of seven times. Like that's just the reality. But the thing with Boston that strikes me that I'm concerned with is like, they pulled off a miracle in game four. Like that was Milwaukee. Milwaukee played so damn well and Boston just got these key plays. The thing with Boston, because this is where playoffs really matter, fatigue is going to hit them hard. Like, at some point, them playing their top seven – like, they can't play Al Horford is 35 years old, 40 minutes a night. Like, at some point, that's going to come down to earth. They need to rely more on Brown and Smart and some of these guys getting more shots. They can't have Tatum shoot 30 times every game. If not, they're going to lose. Does fatigue start to be a bigger influence in this series, especially because game five is crucial. Game five, you got Boston at home – 
could potentially take back home court advantage. If they lose, you got a game six elimination game in Milwaukee, which is probably the worst place you want to play in probably out of all these arenas left. Yeah. I, I guess you, you talk about superstars that you would least want to play against. And while I, while I did just say, I feel like Giannis is the best player in the league. I mean, Steph Curry. Yeah. The guy is, I mean, three championships, like the greatest shooter of all time. If we're talking about guys I would least want to see in the playoffs, it's Steph Curry because that guy can turn it on at any time. And yet, and the Warriors have gotten Jordan Poole has been a revelation as well. You know, Clay Thompson kind of on and off this year. He's still, you know, working his way back. Obviously, he had a very devastating injury. But if there's any, I would take I would take a hot Steph Curry over any player in the league just because of how much damage he can do and how much he can wreck your game plan going into a playoff game. Yeah, and I actually totally agree because I've I've been saying this. This sounds a little shocking. I feel like Golden State's been the sweeping giant contender this whole year. Like I feel like people are more talking about even more Dallas than Golden State when I think Golden State's way better and like some of those teams. My question to you, this is, I'm, I'm, you know me, I'm like the NBA historian. I love looking at the history of like the broader league. What is a more fascinating narrative to you? The Bucks having this back-to-back title season where they come off, surprise everyone last year and they blow out everyone this year or underratedly, how about this Boston team if they make it to the NBA finals you have this peak of like you get Tatum, you get Brown, make the Eastern Conference Finals. You have to deal with LeBron at the peak of his powers. The Kyrie Irving dreaded season the year after the bubble season, they just totally got screwed over. And I think they were a way better team than Miami, and they just flat out sucked. And they come back this year with this run. What's the more impressive story to you? I would definitely say Boston is a more compelling narrative. And partly because this this group of guys hasn't reached the mountaintop, they haven't won the Eastern Conference even. Um, and like you're, yeah, you you mentioned the the series where they they lost to LeBron a couple of years ago. And I think one, I think the emergence of Marcus Smart, as you know, for most of his career he's been a six man. This year he finally stepped up into a starting role was so effective for them, obviously one defensive player of the year too. And I just think that that core group of guys that they built would be extremely compelling. And, you know, you want to see guys go back to back and like, you know, Giannis is Giannis, but like they did already win their championship. And I think if you're a team like Boston who takes out the defending champs and rides it all the way to its championship, I would say, you know, they, they got Al Horford back this year too. I would say, and even, even the, the front office changes, Brad Stevens went to, became the GM. They got Udoka as, as their new head coach. And I just think the, the whole, just the shift that's happened with the Boston Celtics scene, if they were able to carry that to a championship, I think that would be a really, uh, I think that would be a great story. See, I, I honestly like the Boston one. Cause I think, the only interesting bit with Milwaukee is like if the Bucks won the title, where does Giannis rank all time? Because that would really be fascinating with the MVPs and now the two titles. But with Boston, though, if they don't win the title this season, especially with Philly looking lackluster, I think Miami's kind of one of the worst or one seeds we've had historically. Milwaukee's dealing with injuries. If Boston doesn't make it out, how will we remember this team? Like, will they be like the Dominique 
Wilkins, like Atlanta Hawks, where awesome team, great records, but they can never like pull off a finals run. Cause it's crazy how they've been to what, like four conference finals in like six years or three and five years. And it's just been short every single time. And the stupidest thing on my end this season, cause I got a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong. I, I totally messed up not putting Jason Tatum on the MVP ballot because he was really that game three against, uh, or I think it was game. It was either game two or game three, but that game against Milwaukee where you like dropped like 40 points. I was like, this is why he was one of the seven best players this season. I think the Boston one's definitely pretty interesting too. Yeah. And I think uh, what you brought up the Dominique Wilkins, Atlanta Hawks teams. I think, I think another team that, should Boston not make it that they would be comparable to is the, is the Utah jazz of the nineties. Oh yeah. Another team that, you know, Carl Malone, John Stockton, two of the greatest players ever at their respective positions, but they were just never able to get over the hump. And I don't necessarily think that either of Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown as of now are, I mean, obviously they're both very young, but even trajectory wise I don't know if they'll be go down in history as some of the greatest at their positions but in terms of the the build of the team the talent that they have not being able to win a championship could in history you know they they could be mentioned in the same breath as as the 1990s Utah Jazz well yeah that's an awesome comparison because they're like the poor like the modern day poor man's version of that now where you have like the top five to seven MVP candidate, the second star, and then like the top eight guys that round out the supporting cast. I think it's a good time to move out West because this Phoenix Dallas series got a whole lot more interesting. I've been saying this for a month and a half, along with other guests that have agreed that if he pulls this off, Luka Doncic, this would be like the 07 LeBron run. The team isn't all that good around him. No clear second star, but they could still have that ceiling to make the NBA finals and at least give the Eastern conference, a good fight here. How scared should Phoenix be heading into game five or is Dallas still a big underdog here? I think, I think Phoenix should a hundred percent be scared. They had, they had a two Oh lead and all of a sudden it's gone. And now you look at it, it's in, it's a best of three series. And I think Luka Doncic is the best player in this series. As good as Chris Paul has been this playoffs, as good as Devin Booker has been in this playoffs. Luka has been just a phenom. And I've always been I've always been a high on Luka Doncic. So I've always been a Luka Doncic fan. And I think it would be, I think it would be, a, honestly, very devastating to Chris Paul's legacy, the fact that it seems like this Phoenix team, where there's two superstars in Paul and Booker, but that's another team that is very deep. Cam Johnson was a Six Man of the Year candidate. Jay Crowder has had some great games. DeAndre Ayton is also, I mean, you know, he, he's he's limited in terms of his shooting ability, but he's he's a defensive presence. He grabs boards. I think this team is 100% more built to win than the Mavericks are. And I think it, it would tarnish, not I, I guess not tarnish, but like it would continue the narrative of how Chris Paul can't you know succeed in the playoffs because you know he is with those Clippers teams even with the early New Orleans teams too they've been very good but they just haven't been able to put it together when it matters most and I think and I I do think Phoenix should be worried because Luca is playing 
out of his mind right now. Dorian Finney-Smith has been playing very well too. And even, even the, the Mavs are missing one of their go-to scorers in Tim Hardaway. Like they're down, they're down a, a pretty respectable piece for their team. And the fact that this series is tied has shocked me. So that that's the interesting like kind of narrative I think from this series that I totally agree. I wouldn't call it tarnished, but it's definitely the word right below that where it's a clear cut case where Phoenix was 11 games better than the Miami Heat in terms of the regular season. They were like eight or nine better than the second seed out West. They were easily like, if we look back at the season five years from now, just on paper, we're going to know Phoenix was the best team this season, clearly like throughout. So the fact that they might come up short, it's going to hurt CP3's legacy because that's always been a big sticking point for me that I'm excited for because I've covered it the past year with last season's run and now this season where CP3's rising up the ranks, I think, a lot more recently because of his kind of later career stints with OKC and now Phoenix. But that narrative will re-come back. And the other thing, too, with Chris Paul is, like, if it's not this year, I think it's kind of done. Like, next year he would be that guy, but maybe he's, like, the third guy, the fourth guy because he's, what, he's 37 now. He's the, – the miles run out for – like, other than John Stockton, CP3 is the only, like, mid-30s point guard that can be your second best player. Every other time is flamed out. So at some point, if it's not this season, it's not going to happen. But consequently, though – it's interesting to see like if Phoenix loses though, how do we grade Luka Doncic down the road? Where like, if they make the finals this year, we're going to be like, wow, they beat Phoenix of all teams and not like an easier path to the conference, uh, to the title. I've see, I think regardless of how the series goes, Luka should be considered in the top five, if not top three players in the NBA right now. And the fact that, they they've gotten this far already. They've done what they do, they've done in this series is a testament to how influential he can be for a team. And now it just seems like win or lose, if the Mavericks trade for or draft a stud second player, like if if the Mavericks get a guy like Chris Paul or Devin Booker to compliment Luca. That's a team that will be so dangerous for however many years to come, as long as Luca is playing at a high level, which it seems like he will be for a long time. It just seems like the Mavericks, as long as they get someone to compliment him like that, they will be a perennial finals contender for the foreseeable future. Well, and if you're looking at the broader landscape too, you have the perfect combination, which is you have Luca in the middle of his prime. And I think he could go even a, a level beyond that. And you look and you're like, the Lakers aren't good. Utah's going to blow it up at some point. We'll get to Utah in a bit. Golden State, way shorter time span because they're getting, other than Phoenix and maybe Denver, if everything goes well, they're the third team out there where I'm like, if they win a title in the next half decade, if they make it to two finals, whatever, I could see it happening. The other series I want to mention them, Golden State Memphis is a very fascinating series because I think clearly – I thought it would be a lot closer. Golden State's blew it out of the water the last two games. And now even playing horrible last game, they won by three points and are now up 3-1. Is Golden State still the sweeping giant kind of for title contention? Because I do think they have the right pieces there. I just think it hasn't clicked yet. Absolutely. I 100% feel that way. Like I said, I think in the playoffs, Steph Curry is the most dangerous player that you can have on the court. 
Um, and the emergence of Jordan Poole late in the season and in this postseason is even crazier because the little, little Michigan magic. <laughs> I know. I love that. I love to see it. Um, and it, it is, it is fitting that people are calling him the third splash brother now because of the way that he's played. And I think, you know, Clay Thompson, he's, he's, you know, had his moments this year when he's come back. I think it's still, we're still looking for a little more out of him to being the player that he was pre-injury, but that's also a guy that you can never take lightly either. And I think, you know, as, as Golden State continues to play games in the playoffs, Clay Thompson will start shining more and more. And I mean, you, you talk about the death lineup with, you know, Steph, Poole, Clay, uh, Andrew Wiggins, and Draymond Green. You know, Andrew, Andrew Wiggins, whether you agree with it or not, the guy was an all-star this year, right? So that it's that's another team that is extremely deep. They have guys who have a ton of playoff experience. And I would I think regardless of what happens in the other series, it will be Golden State winning the Western Conference. And probably winning the finals. I think Golden State is the finals favorite as as it stands now. Golden State for me has like the highest ceiling for sure, just because it can get so hot. The other thing too is like they're the team out of all the teams left where they can have more than one guy have a astronomically hot offensive performance. Like I don't expect the Bucks like a game where Middleton and Giannis both dropped forty, or I don't expect a game where Tatum and Brown dropped forty. With, with Golden State, I could see Jordan Poole scoring 35 points and Steph Curry having 31 in the game, and we've seen that before. The, the one problem I have with Golden State, though, I don't know what your reaction is to this. I don't think they have a top-tier defender on the team. Like, they're really relying on more of, like, a team construct. They don't have, like, a – Andrew Wiggins fits in in theory and Gary Payton's out, but I do think they're lacking, like, a go-to lockdown defender. If this was 2017, you have Klay Thompson as that. Draymond's more of, like, the – team help sort of guy is do you think that'll be a problem for golden state that lack of kind of defensive identity or you think they're just going to survive that i don't think so i i truly i feel like you're discrediting draymond green and his defensive ability right now and maybe Uh, i most definitely am yes (laughs) and you know maybe he isn't necessarily the same as he was a couple years ago but the guy is still one of the premier defensive players in the league clay thompson again like you said you know, several years ago, he was one of the, he was one of, if not the best wing defender in the league. I think he's still a force on the defensive end. So I don't necessarily think that they don't have a go-to lockdown defender, but I do, I mean, their, their defensive deficiencies in Steph Curry's game, their defensive deficiencies in Jordan Poole's game. So I understand how it seems like there are guys who, you know, maybe when it when it comes down to crunch time, that might get that might get cooked late in the game if they're ISOed. But I, I think to say that they don't have a go-to defender is is a bit of a stretch. Well, I, I will I will point out that because I, I agree with you on the stance that what stood out to me from Golden State, they're so small with the small ball lineup, they're incredibly good rebounding wise. Like they're 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 not getting killed on the glass, which I thought that would be the death was that they would be easily outscored 
because they would get they would give up too many offensive rebounds and basically be bullied to death. But they've done that. They've handled that pretty well. And I think part of that's been Draymond and Andrew Wiggins have been really good at that. Gary Payne, the second space, like a six foot two shack in terms of just the pure hustle and athleticism. And if you're Golden State, the other thing I think that benefits them other than Giannis, they match up well against every single team left in the NBA. Like they match up great against the drop coverages or the switch coverages. The only wild card is the Bucks, just because Giannis is a seven foot modern day Shaq and nobody can guard that guy. So, I mean, that you can live with that if you have all the shooting that Golden State does. Uh, other, other narrative here, though, is Memphis Grizzlies. What's your kind of framework for how this series will be remembered? Because without a doubt with the Grizzlies, they had a surprise year. John Moran took the leap we all thought he would take. He was in the most improved conversation. But they're going to end up losing in five games. Like I don't think that it'll go more than five or six games. So what, what's kind of your take on the Grizzlies here? Because we were pretty high on them, like, earlier this year. And I feel like things have kind of tapered off just a bit. Yeah, I, I was also very high on the Grizzlies. I think it's very unfortunate that Ja is hurt. And I I, I guess news just broke today that even if um, Memphis would come back from a 3-1 deficit and win the series, it's still debatable whether Ja would even return for the playoffs. And I think a lot a lot of hoopla that's gone around right now is is was the play by Jordan Poole dirty. And and I didn't, I agree with that. I completely, I think it was just a basketball play. He was, he was going after the ball and like, it sucks that it happened. And, and Jaws has been so electric this year. It's so exciting in the playoffs. He's, he's had some just all time highlights, but I, I don't think this Grizzlies team will be going away either. It's a very young core. I think this experience will be good for them in the long run. I think, Next year and in the following years, they'll they'll be better equipped. They'll they'll kind of they'll be battle tested in the playoffs, and they'll return to you know the elite play that they had this year. But I don't I don't think there should be any knocks on what the Grizzlies have done this season. To be honest, I don't either. Because similarly, I mean, the Grizzlies have all this young core. The thing I'm excited for is what do they do with John Morant? Because they need to put a second star, kind of like Luca in Dallas. And I'm wondering. Do they think Jaron Jackson Jr. is that guy or do they trade like Dylan Brooks and Desmond Bain and get a, a Jalen Brown guy or a Donovan Mitchell guy? That's going to be more interesting because the problem I have with Memphis just ending on this note, it kind of reminds me in terms of a narrative like the Shaq Penny Magic, where it's the super young team that needed to test the waters first and they absolutely go dominant. I can see Memphis going that route. But my problem, though, is that they do need another guy around John Morant. We saw this year how Golden State was fine letting Jaw score 45 points if they could stop everyone else. It's kind of like the Luka corollary, too. That, like, I, that's what I'm wondering for Memphis for sure. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I also I see a lot of similarities in terms of the way Memphis plays basketball to the Miami Heat, like we mentioned earlier. Oh, like, yeah, for sure. Like – the Heat have their clear superstar in Jimmy Butler. The, the Grizzlies have their clear superstar in Ja Morant. I think I think Desmond Bain and Tyler Hero have a lot of similarities as well. Jaron Jackson's come on a lot this year. And, you know, he, he might not be as good as Bam is, despite, you know, the struggles that he's had of late. But Jaron Jackson's played very well in the playoffs when he stays out of foul trouble. So yeah, I don't, for, the, for the 20 minutes and night he's on the court before the yeah. spouse, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't think they necessarily need 
a second superstar, but I think if they do, that's another team that will, you know, be a perennial contender, a perennial finals contender. But even without it, that that's a team that will will be strong for many years to come. And again, that it's a very young core. Dylan Brooks is young. Desmond Bain's young. Jaws young. Jackson's young. Brandon Clark's young. Like they all, they have a bunch of guys. Really, like the oldest contributor that they have on their team on a consistent basis is Stephen Adams. And you know, Stephen Adams has a very defined role. Like you know exactly what you're going to get out of him, and I think that's serviceable. And I just think that that team will continue to grow, even if you know, even if they lose Game Five. And regardless of that, Memphis is set up for future success for sure. To me, I, I definitely agree. I think we can move on to a couple storylines that are being lost in the NBA because the whole playoff thing's going on. I want to talk about the MVP conversation because it's always a subject of debate among NBA people and followers and all that stuff. Like. What do you value more? First off, what do you think is your criteria for how you delegate an MVP? And number two, we know Jokic won. Was he, in your eyes, the MVP this season? That That's a tough one because I feel like in my heart, I want the MVP to always be the best player in the NBA. And, and we, we both know that that almost never happens, Right. I had I, I, Giannis was the close one for me because not having him in the first or second spot, I had him third because I had Jokic and beat. But yeah, I, I agree there. You kind of want to put the best guys on the ballot that year. Yeah. But I think when you talk about statistically and what they've meant to their team, I will, I will never disagree with anyone who thinks Joel Embiid should have been the MVP this year, but at the same time, Jokic carried this Nuggets team that was minus Jamal Murray the whole year. That was minus Michael Porter Jr. pretty much the entire year. Uh, I got a couple stats up. Jokic was the first player to ever slash 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, 500 assists in a season ever. He averaged 27, 14, and 8. That's a ridiculous stat line. <laughs> and he had the highest, if you're into the advanced stats, he had the highest player efficiency rating ever recorded. So if you're talking about the value, the most valuable player to your team, I think it's hard to go against Jokic just because of what he was missing around him and the production that he still had this year. So I'm not upset with it. Uh, he was my pick all along because my logic is like, all the, the, the reason why this year was tough is like all of them had the combination that we're looking for the excellent stats value to the team, but also they were all good. Like, I think people what they had a problem with this year. I don't know if you agree or disagree. It was kind of like a little Russell Westbrook in 2017 where they're like, Oh, are we giving the best most valuable player this season to a guy who was on a six seed and barely made the playoffs and had to avoid the plan where like, in years past, like, I wouldn't really care because we're talking about most valuable. My question to you, so it sounds like we're pretty high on Jokic, and if it wasn't Jokic, maybe Giannis. Why were people so high on Joel Embiid? Because I get it. Like, he's got – I thought I thought Joel Embiid had the second-best supporting cast of all these three guys. I think Jokic not missing a lot of time and consequently Embiid missing time matters because part of being valuable is being able to be on the court and play as many regular season games as possible. 
why were people so high on Embiid where everyone's saying Embiid was robbed? He should have been the MVP. Where is that narrative coming from? I think it's because it's because of the team's success. I think it's because the, the Sixers earned a higher seed than the Nuggets did. And also Embiid was a scoring champion in the NBA this year. I think I think that's the, the root of why people think he was robbed. And I think Embiid is a more physically dominant player than Jokic is. But Jokic, at, I think, is more well-rounded and skilled. Like, Embiid is a, is a more complete defensive player than Jokic is. But the offensive versatility that Jokic offers, like, Embiid will never be considered, like, a point guard, like a point center where who can facilitate an offense. Like, he's almost always the one who's getting it down low. But you see Jokic, you know, taking the ball at the court. He's he's running plays and passing the ball off to other guys on his team. I think that's just so unique for for a center, and that's why he got it. But I think I think it stems from the fact that the, the Sixers were a more successful team this year and the fact that Embiid was a scoring champion are, is the root of why people feel like he was robbed. I think my theory, if I had to pick it, I think it's everything you said. I also think narrative matters because we know this with the MVP, how narrative really shapes how people and voters decide who's the MVP. Like Westbrook in 2017, it was Kevin Durant left the to the Warriors, like Westbrook's the home dog and they win 48 games. You look at like the Steve Nash years, like in 05 and 06, where it was like the best new upcoming team, white guy, like the whole white guy narrative. You, you, you play that card. The thing I have with, here is I think the Ben Simmons factor really mattered because I think everyone was like, look at Ben Simmons. Like he didn't help Philly and look, they're still good. Embiid's the reason. And consequently, I don't think, I think with all the coverage in the West with Golden State's rise, Memphis's rise, Dallas looking really good the last two thirds of the year, I think Denver got lost in the fold that, oh wait, Jokic's best player was what, Will Barden, Monty Morris. Like they, they, they were losing, they, they didn't have their second and third best player still won more than 500 games, like more than the like above 500 winning percentage and made the playoffs outright without the playing tournament. I think that's pretty valuable. I, I agree with that. And like, that's at the end of the day, that's why, that's why I, I think I, I don't know if I agree with Jokic winning, but I completely understand why he did and am not going to, am not going to, you know, cry and scream about it even though I think Giannis is the best player in the league and probably should have won it. But the fact that Jokic did what he did without those guys is extremely respectable. And even, even then, like it's, it's, I feel like it's always just, it's a toss up between the top three or five guys, three or five best players in the NBA. And, and at the end of the day, like you said, it, it's just about the narrative. Well, and the other thing, too, I think the one last note I have on the MVP is that we knew this, how the NBA is transitioning to way more small ball, five out offense. You have to play guys down positions like more. You don't want to play a power forward at the four or the three. You want to play them at the five. This season proved, as well as last year with Jokic winning, that you still need a dominant big man, that the most valuable coveted position is that big four or five who can just do everything on both ends of the court. Cause underrated with, with Jokic, it wasn't just the offense that was good, but Denver was astronomically better defensively. You'd be surprised with Jokic than without Jokic and Jokic. The, the resume was like, he's a horrible defender. You could attack him. It wasn't the case this year. 
But I think, yeah, the direction of the league clearly is that those sorts of like pantheon archetype guys that could do everything and be big. That's definitely the future of the NBA. I think that we're going to head in the next couple of years for sure. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's really interesting because it seemed like a while ago, like, especially at the peak of the golden state days when it was, I think the NBA is still a lot about shooting, but like back when golden state was like that dynasty early in their, in their championship days, several years ago, it was like, you don't need a dominant big man to be successful. You just need guys who can shoot the ball. And now with, with the recent emergence of guys like Embiid and Jokic, it's, it's, it's just been interesting to see how people view the center position specifically in terms of how successful teams can be. Last question for you before we end the pod is, uh, we're of course winding down to basically reaching the conference finals here. Out of all these superstars or NBA legends left, who's got the most at stake for the rest of this postseason? Because I did an entire pod on this, and there was a lot of candidates. But I want to hear your thoughts on this. Who has the most at stake? I would, I would say Chris Paul. I agree. That I, I think Chris Paul has a lot to go for here. I would say Chris Paul, and and I say that because this is a guy who has always been one of my favorite players in the NBA. And it just seems like he's always been on teams who have had the potential to do it and have just come up short. You know, he's, he's aging. He doesn't have many of these good years left that, that he's been performing at this level. And it just seems like if it's not either this year or next year, it's not going to happen. And even if he, even if he latches on with a team that, you know, is is very good, but ha- is but ends up being like the third or fourth option. I don't think it would mean as much for his legacy, unless he unless he wins with Phoenix as the clear second option. And it just seems like if if it's not with Phoenix, it won't be with anybody. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, second round is still underway here, and we'll hopefully have another episode kind of previewing the conference finals and looking back at some of these teams and some of these closer series. But Eisman, great episode as always. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how, how the rest of this plays out.